Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SagAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very proud to introduce Mr. James Hong. Once again, thank you so much for being here well, and sharing you for your time. Me. Thanks to, uh, to the Screen Actors Guild Foundation, doing a wonderful job. Oh. I saw all the work you do there. You know, they have classes for co- free classes for co- co-reading and also reading of books uh, to uh, children and other uh, groups, uh, all kinds of things. And, and we'll have a little reception there, so feel free to come over. Hi, Mickey. How are you? <laughs> When some of my students are here, and of course all my family. <laughs> I think everybody's family out there. <laughs> it's the Hong's night, I think. Uh, but I'm so glad you took the time to come here. I was a little afraid that, that the heat might stop you from coming and the traffic at this time of the day. But uh, I thank you for coming. Uh, but now, uh, I must warn you because my wife said, when I told her that um, I was, this is one of those events where a person talks and I'm going to talk for two hours. And she says, well, everybody will be bored to tears. <laughs> so uh, I hope not. I hope not. Although I must tell you, my brother sitting here in the front row, Walter, has uh, uh, told me about our uh, uh, family, the Hong family. Actually, we're wolves. That's a long story. <laughs> it would take more than two hours. <laughs> but anyway, the, the Hong family... Uh, has a family poem from the area where we're from, the Toisan village in, in China. And it's 800 years old. Somehow, each generation, when they have another, a name, it's uh, written into this poem, and it's handed down all through the years till now. And he read it the other day, and he assured me everything is okay because he says, from the wings of heaven, uh, there will... We will arrive to Mei, making, that means making, it's a, it, on the wings to making, Mei is uh, the term for um, America is Mei Guac, and making is Mei area. So 800 years ago, they predicted that I would fly here and be <laughs> in this country. So I'm okay. <laughs> Well, I don't think there's any danger that this will be a boring evening. Uh, <laughs> I was amazed when I saw your credits. In fact, I started printing them out, and I was afraid that the printer was going to run out of paper <laughs> because of all of the credits, all of the things that you've done. Um, starting with the, the first and most obvious question, uh, how did you first become interested in acting? How did I first become interested in acting? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I guess, actually, I pull off this picture, but this is a picture when I was, um, uh, maybe I should take it out of the frame so it doesn't glisten so much. 
Uh, I brought along a few old pictures here. Th this is a picture of me uh, on my immigration, a little passport thing, uh, when I first re-entered the United States. In other words, I came back at the age of about nine. And well, looking at this little kid, I, I don't know exactly looking back how he became interested in show business, except that I might say around that time, we took the last boat uh, from China, Hong Kong, to back to America. This is after my father took me to uh, uh, Hong Kong. Uh, he, in fact, he took the whole family back to uh, Kowloon, Hong Kong, and we lived there because he thought the family was becoming too Americanized. <laughs> so even in those days, you can see that uh, there was a fear of being too Americanized. Uh, so on that picture was when I re-entered to Seattle back to uh, 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 America. And it was not long after that, I think the war, Second World War started, and my father used to put me on a little soapbox on a salary crate because we were a re restaurant business. And he, he says, okay, James, uh, Jimmy, he called me. Okay, Jimmy, speak so we can raise some money for the war effort, you know. <laughs> so then I would go ahead and start shouting uh, uh, slogans and one, I said, you know, uh, uh, you know, we must beat, in those days, the Japanese war. So we must beat the Japanese from invading China and so forth. Please donate money. And people would give money. And I, think that, <laughs> and I said, well, you know, you can get money doing this. <laughs> so anyway, I think that's kind of how it started. And then um, at the same time, we, uh, the Sunday school in uh, Minneapolis, the Westminster Church, uh, and, and I have a picture of that. Um, when I first re, uh, came back to America, if I, oh yes, here it is. The uh, Presbyterian, Westminster Presbyterian Church in uh, Minneapolis took us all in because they were interested. And there's a whole history about that that's being written uh, about how the Chinese Americans uh, settled in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and the Twin City was, of course, St. Paul, and uh, uh, how uh, our family was, uh, uh, at, we were the Chinatown. And Chinatown, <laughs> Minneapolis, mind you, <laughs> consists of two stores. <laughs> and we were living upstairs in one of the stores, and uh, uh, that was uh, uh, our Chinatown. We were born in that area. And the, the Westminster Church then uh, uh, enlisted all the Chinese in the whole city of Minneapolis and St. Paul to come to the Westminster Church. And th this, you can't see this too well, but you'll get a, a, just an, a feeling of what I'm trying to show you. There's eight Chinese women who were the, uh, 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 oh, you can, is that showing up there? I'll be darned. <laughs> Modern technology. Okay, so uh, these were the eight mothers of that generation, they were all first generation, and by that I mean they were born in China, plucked from the villages of China, and put into Minneapolis, Minnesota. And they had a great fear of the West, of this America. So what I'm trying to say is that um, the church gave me a, a, a chance to, to, to perform during uh, certain times, uh, like Christmas or so forth, you know. We were three kings forever. 
Uh, there were three of us, uh, and we were, every year we were three kings. And then our voices start to crack, and that was the end of that for a while. Uh, but anyway, the, 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 uh, uh, that gave us the chance to perform in Sunday school, you know, so the, that probably was another big help to uh, learning about yourself. And we did little skits, you know, where um, I think I remember one where it was uh, about the peach, peach pie. I played both the little boy who was trying to buy, can I have a peach pie? Then I would put a mustache on, no, you can't have a little peach pie. <laughs> so so I, I remembered it, so it must have made a great impression on me. <laughs> and that's how I first, first started. And was I, that what you meant? That is exactly what I meant. <laughs> I'm amazed you remember those lines. Um, I, you want I the whole that, thing? Yeah. <laughs> well, let's see how we're doing. Um, I also read that uh, in college you uh, were a stand-up comedian. Uh, can you tell us about that? About what? Being a stand-up comedian. Okay. I'd I like to go back just a tiny bit before that, um, discovering myself in so-called the performing arts on stage. And... Um, as you can see, uh, Minnesota is not the place to be an American Chinese. <laughs> because there were, uh, to, to give you an idea, in my high school, of Central High School, there were probably 2,000 students, and I was the only Chinese American there. <laughs> so in a way, I thought it was Swedish. <laughs> yeah. Really, they, they used to call me Nels. <laughs> that, that was my nickname. And I used to talk like them, you know, all the Swedes talk. And I used to go to the next door neighbor to eat s'mores. Yeah. So, uh, but don't laugh. That, that accent finally paid off because I did it in World's Greatest Lover with Gene Wilder. Uh, he, he loved that uh, Swedish accent. Uh, and I learned a lot from Gene, Gene Wilder. Um, and it's worth mentioning. He, he said, he taught, what he taught me was that one day I think I went up to him, I said, well, how about the, the, the character I'm playing say this, you know? And he says, no, 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 we've done that before. And so I've learned a lot from that. I went back and thought, yeah, I guess in, in class or in acting, we shouldn't do too many things that you've done before in the previous scene. Always approach the scene from another angle the humor from another angle, even if it's sort of the same humor, but attack it from another viewpoint. I, I think you'll so-called milk the heck out of it, you know? Uh, and, and then uh, in junior high school, I had a role as a villain already. Uh, in, in the, uh, uh, so it's funny, in junior high school, I was accepted in the class play in a melodrama. I was playing the villain, you know? Uh, but then in high school, when we did Barrett's of Wimpole Street, uh, uh, the British drama. Uh, they look at me now at that time, then when you're high school gra uh, graduating, they said, well, what should we do with James Hong? You know, he doesn't fit in Barrett's of Wimpole Street. So, <laughs> so um, there was one part of a doctor. So it was between myself and this redhead, Robert Quinrow, I remember his name, very good friend of mine. <laughs> and, um, he got the job, you know, so as to say, <laughs> because they just didn't know what to do with a Chinese-American, even in high school. So 
that overlap into um, uh, college, uh, I wanted to, you know, I was studying engineering because, uh, and that's a long story because um, uh, the Chinese, uh, uh, especially my parents, didn't want me to be in acting because they thought that was, would be the last rung in the ladder of professions. <laughs> you laugh. <laughs> but uh, so they said, be a civil engineer, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be, a, be, a, be any a great profession. Don't be an actor, you know. <laughs> For those who don't understand Chinese, that means <laughs> there's quite a few of you, I think. <laughs> they said, don't show people what that, you know. Meaning, I guess from that one sentence, it's... That's the whole history of the Chinese being a sort of the silent minority because you're taught not to show your emotions in... See, Roger Lowe knows. He, he comes from that background. A lot of us do. You're taught not to show your feelings in public because it's shameful. It's, you know, it's in a sense, what the Americans say, your own dirty laundry, you know? Uh, so did part, you huh? know... Did you know when you were in junior high and high school that that's what you wanted to do, even though you knew it wasn't what your parents wanted? That's a good question, because at that age, you just want to be among the crowd. You want to be in with the group, you know. So you just want to be playing ball. You want to go to the prom and so forth. So when you're not accepted, you don't exactly know how to accept not being accepted. Uh, And then in time, when you look back, then you say, well, that's the reason why. But at the time you were rejected, you, you don't know why because, uh, and you kind of accept the hurt and as the time goes along, uh, that's the same, same way you feel. So what, but what that I did, and this is a lesson to be learned, is that I didn't accept that rejection. I was from Minnesota, I was, uh, uh, you know, I, I act as if I were part of a majority because I didn't know what a minority felt, feel, felt like. Uh, so I quickly, switch from uh, 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 so-called acting to, uh, as a sideline to um, uh, a comedy. Because in, do you realize that in doing stand-up comedy, you can stand up there alone, one person, and you can you know, entertain the whole audience. So that's why I took to stand-up comedy and uh, impersonating uh, uh, different people, different stars. Uh, when you're in Minnesota, you just worship people like, James Cagney, all right, you dirty, dirty rats. <laughs> this is my room, and nobody sits in here, see? So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, and, and then uh, I went on the um, local uh, American Idol show in those days. <laughs> <laughs> it was called the Cedric Adams Stairway to Stardom. <laughs> Uh, it was a very serious thing. Uh, I was in the, uh, among the last competitors, and I did all those. Peter, um, uh, yes. I, I love to, I love blood, don't you think? <laughs> and I would open the door. In those days, there was the inner sanctum uh, uh, mystery hour. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Inner Sanctum Mystery. Welcome.
So I loved that and I lost. <laughs> so anyway, but uh, that got my uh, an attention from a, a schoolmate, Don Parker. He's not here. He's taking a, a trip to uh, Alaska on one of those cruises. Uh, but he called me up and we teamed up and we called ourselves Hong and Parker. And we came to Hollywood, uh, uh, you know, because uh, one summer we decided, the whole family decided to move out and we were going to drive out here and then go back to Minnesota to finish my last year because you get the best football seats when you're a senior. <laughs> uh, so I came out this summer, drove across the uh, Coenga Pass, uh, and that was frightening in those days. We didn't have a freeway and it was just a kind of a small highway, but all these semis going up and down. And Don was a good driver, but I felt like I was you know, being pushed by all these semi-trailers. Uh, uh, do you realize how it feels like to be a Minnesota kid coming out to Los Angeles? It's a big town here. And we drove straight to Walter's house on Vermont. Uh, <laughs> Verendo, wasn't it? Verendo? Yeah, Verendo. Yeah, right. And uh, uh, they told us all about the big city. And when we drove down, Don and I finally drove down uh, Sunset Boulevard, uh, past the original Hamburger Hamlet in those days. Uh, this is 1953. Hamburger, hamburger Hamlet. You, you know, have you seen that original Hamburger Hamlet on Sunset? And, and in the front row where there's a little uh, railing there, eating his hamburger was Jack Palance. <laughs> We both look at, we said, there's Jack Palance, Jack Palance. Wow. You know. <laughs> so I think from that moment, we fell in love with Hollywood. Because, uh, and then um, that summer when we were out here, before I went back to um, supposedly go back to Minnesota, I got on the Groucho Mark show uh, at that time. It was You Bet Your Life. Uh, some of you may have seen the replay of those black and white um, uh, shows. And I was a contestant. Um, and uh, they got me on the show that summer because I could do these, they found out I could do see, these little quirky impersonations, you know. <laughs> and so, uh, they, so Groucho handed me his cigar and he says, uh, can you do me? And I, I says, Groucho Marx, that's me. You bet your life. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> on and on. And, and I got the second biggest fan mail for that show ever. And then I got a telegram, too bad I don't have a copy of that, a telegram from uh, a, a nightclub in San Francisco called The Forbidden City. Some of you may have seen the documentary about Forbidden City. That's the only um, Asian nightclub aside from some small, small ones. But Forbidden City was a fabulous uh, club. And, um, asking me if I would go up there. And he said he would have a job for me anytime uh, as long as I wanted. But I stayed in Hollywood. And uh, uh, that winter, uh, fall time, I didn't go back and get my seats in uh, Minnesota. <laughs> and uh, study, study engineering, got my degree in uh, USC in civil engineering, and got my civil engineering license, practiced uh, making roads for the uh, city of Los, uh, county of Los Angeles, uh, uh, in that building down on Main and Second, and uh, uh, but I was still interested in show business. I wanted to be an actor, and so 
I, but I wanted to be also an engineer because I wanted to prove to my parents I was worth something. <laughs> so, so I would draw these lines. One, one line, this is after five years of engineering, one line <laughs> for, for the curb and a couple lines for the gutter. <laughs> so then I would pass that road map to the next guy. This is civil service and I draw, <laughs> draw the one line. <laughs> I repeated this day after day, and then I said, but in the meantime, I was doing extra work. And then I got on my first film. Uh, the first film was Soldier of Fortune with, um, with uh, Clark Gable. And, uh, uh, and then the second film was with um, uh, John Wayne in uh, Blood Alley. Third fil film was with uh, uh, Bill Holden in Love is a Many Splendid Thing. I said, gee, this is pretty easy. <laughs> so I have to know how- So did, I quit engineering. How did, your how did your parents respond to this? They didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> when, when did they find out? And, um, <laughs> well, uh, let's see. I think it dawned on my father finally what I was doing. <laughs> Uh, so I was a pretty good actor, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, finally, when I was a few years later, I was uh, 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 called to uh, to uh, do the, the last as the last son, uh, Charlie Chan's son number one, uh, and going to London to do it, the uh, the adventures of Charlie Chan in in London, and so uh, we had a going away party at the restaurant. It, we, we had a restaurant uh, in uh, Whittier that my brother and I literally built with our hands, you know. Uh, and Jade did the painting, my sister. She's a very good artist. Um, uh, I don't know how many paintings she did, maybe two. <laughs> but anyway, it, it hung there and we called it Hong's Restaurant. And so we had a party there, a going away party for me. And the newspaper came and, and uh, the Whittier News. Um, I don't know if Nixon was there or not, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but so my father looked around and says, that's my son, Jim. <laughs> so he was pretty proud of me and I was, I was flabbergasted that he approved in, in his own way of mine being an actor. And he says, uh, gee, you can make money with this. <laughs> so I did, I went to uh, London and did um, uh, Charlotte's and Son number one. This is, a story on top of a story, just before that Charlie Chan acceptance. And this is a lesson to be learned for, for all actors and striding actors, is that, um, that Charlie Lowe gave me that telegram, all right? So I accepted, I finally, finally when things were slow, when kind of slow, I said, um, maybe I should do a nightclub, maybe I should school myself in uh, doing nightclub in Forbidden City for a few years, learned tap dancing. There was a guy named uh, Tony Wing that was a great tap dancer, and um, he knows, yeah, and, and tell jokes, do my little silly impersonations and, and that, you know, uh, and then go on to the cat skills like uh, Pat Morita did, and, and then become a funny guy and earn a steady living maybe instead of being just uh, waiting for the next job as actor. But they were calling, just when I accepted that job, um, uh, this guy named Rudy Floto uh, called and said, 
uh, James, why don't you come on down and interview for Charlie Chan, uh, the son number one does a role. So it was a small production. Uh, uh, so I went into, I think, Ally Artists over there uh, and went up. He had a small office and he's the only guy there. There was no super casting agent or anything like that, you know. So Rudy's doing all his own work and, uh, uh, and, and he's uh, writing things down. And I brought my picture and resume in like you, you people do, you know. And he wasn't paying any attention to me. And so I just pounded on the table. I said, Mr. Floto, would you please look at me? I said, I'm going abroad to do, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm doing, going up to San Francisco to do this nightclub, and I won't be back for a while, but look at my face. If you want a son number one, I'm your guy. <laughs> and then I, and he just went like this. <laughs> so I, I just left, you know, I left my picture and resume there. <laughs> went up to do my, my uh, little tap dancing and jokes up in uh, Forbidden City uh, in San Francisco on Sutter Street. And uh, doing pretty well. Uh, then I think it was like 10 days later, got this call from Rudy Floater and says, come on down, kid, you got the job. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just this, something to be learned in the sense that sometimes you have to be assertive, you know? Um, for somehow, some reason, he remembered me. I don't think I even did uh, an audition in reading the script or anything. Maybe he just <laughs> took that. Something I taught my students, right, Nikki? Since he's been my student for one month, he's gotten three jobs. <laughs> I can't believe it. Stand, stand up, stand up, and, and stand up, stand up. I want you to stand up. That so, speaking, uh, just a, a thing about Mickey is that uh, uh, I, I love good students. He's a very good student, very talented. But when I saw him do my, because uh, he was doing photography, he's still doing photography and other things, I thought he wasn't focused, you know? And, and I tried to steer him back with the lessons I gave him coaching, back into concentrating on his emotions and what he should be putting forth into the role. He did that several times, and I guess it just kind of refocused, your, redirected your direction into show business, right? And you're still doing photography. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of education, uh, other than uh, the Three Kings and uh, high <laughs> and, uh, and high school, did you have any formal uh, drama training when you first came out to Hollywood and when you first really started pursuing this? Yeah. You're Tell redirecting this um, conversation, right? I'm getting lost. <laughs> That's why they bring me here. Uh, what kind of formal training? Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Um, yes, yes. When that, uh, right after I came and settled down after the Groucho Marx show, I went to a workshop. I think it's still there on uh, Ivar or somewhere. It's the Circle Theater uh, right across from that um, school where Marilyn Monroe goes to, near, near Melrose. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. there's, it's still there anyway. And I, I, I said, I'll check on the schools. And so then I went in there and Jeff Corey was a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he is a tremendous teacher. I wish there were more like him. Uh, he was directing uh, the guy that was in um, 
what is the name? Uh, Beretta. What's his name? Robert Blake. Who? Robert Blake. Yeah, Robert Blake. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he's very famous. <laughs> so anyway, Robert and another ingenue, and I forgot her name. Uh, uh, Jeff was giving them lessons. He's sitting here, somewhat like this, and he's uh, trying to, to uh, uh, tell Robert and this other uh, beautiful young lady, who was mainly a musical comedy person, he was trying to get them to forget their image, like Robert as the our gang kid, and the other lady forget her musical singing and dancing. So she, she, he had him jumping up and down the set back there in that uh, little theater, and uh, hollering and whooping. And, and, and I, I saw that at work in a sense of shaking your emotions, you know what I mean? Shaking them loose and finding their real emotions, put them back into the scene. Uh, I learned a lot from uh, Jeff. And uh, so uh, that, he was my first teacher, uh, and then Jeff then got too busy and turned the class of, by then it got to be, I, I started that class and then there were like um, maybe 10 other Asian Americans who wanted to train themselves because uh, they never, prior to my coming in a sense, they were all just, you know, in it for the buck, so as to say. Uh, they, nobody really took too many lessons. So we all congregated and took lessons from Joe Sargent, Joseph Sargent, who is another outstanding teacher. Who, who knows Joe? Uh, 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 nobody's taking lessons from him, but he taught, oh, back there, back there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Daylene, oh, Daylene. Uh, she's a classmate of mine. Wonderful actress, what an actress. Uh, really an organic type of an actress. And all, and, but Daylene also, is very well known for writing. She, uh, she won an Emmy writing. So I must say that in the class what, that Joe taught, everybody, and this is a, a good word for all of you who are, are striding actors, everybody in that class got an opportunity to, to, uh, uh, to act in the profession. They each one had a role or two and uh, got commercials and, and whatnot. So some of them went on further up and some quit, but they all had their chances. So in a sense, if you stay with it long enough and train well, you'll get a chance. It just depends what you do with that, that chance. Are you prepared and uh, uh, have you really trained yourself? Did you get all your emotions out and then retrain them? Uh, uh, so from Joe, we, we, we went uh, uh, this class uh, continue for about two months, um, and he went on, went on and won an Emmy for uh, or, uh, an award of some kind. He became a great director. Um, since we're on the subject of acting, and, and uh, uh, since I'm sure that we have a lot of ha actors here in the audience, can you talk a little bit about your process? Is there a particular school that you follow, or is there? Uh, how do you prepare for the roles that you play? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. That's a very good question. That's a hard question to answer because each one of us are so different from one another. Uh, I, I guess you take this, this, the, the script 
as I try to remember when I was just starting, because now it becomes sort of routine, but you take a script and you read the lines, you get familiar with the line, and then you try to find out what did the writer mean in this piece of work? What is he trying to get at? In other words, you study the scene. Uh, and what you learn in class about scene study, now you apply to the scene. And you try to rephrase, after you learn the dialogue, you try to rephrase the dialogue in your own words, making yourself think what's behind those words in your own thoughts. And then you try all those exercises and the methods that you've learned in class and, uh, and keep trying to do it in different ways. In other words, um, I find that a lot of actors uh, uh, just are rehearse something and stick with more or less one or two ways of doing that role, doing the scene. But no, I, I think you should do the, the role, the characters in many different ways and do the scene in many different ways. Uh, because you sit here or you study that scene, you don't really know what the producer and, uh, and director has in mind. Uh, uh, it, uh, so you have to try it in different ways and hope that you hit the one or two things that uh, he's after. Um, and some, sometimes when you come out of the interview room, you said, well, why didn't I try that, you know? Right, everybody here, why didn't you try that? It, it, uh, because you weren't really prepared. You didn't think in terms of different ways of doing the scene, the different emotions that the, the uh, character could be having in the scene itself. I'm sure when Daylene writes a character, he, she has many emotions written into each character, well-defined. And you, as the actor, then have to redefine it uh, in your acting. And I find that um, when I'm studying it, as I'm doing the scene uh, or rehearse with somebody, all these little emotions, little things that happen to James Hong, as I showed you in the uh, whether it's Minneapolis or Kowloon, Hong Kong, or uh, uh, different things start to come into play. And each one of you have a background that's very unique and different. Your background and little uh, cells, little uh, molecules start bouncing off. You've got to listen to those, and then somehow they gel together and point out the direction for you to, to go uh, and be very organic about it. Uh, I wouldn't... Uh, over-rehearse something so that it becomes too patterned. Any director and producer can pick out something that's just like a reading, a, a practice, reading too many rehearsals, and that you still have to open yourself up and, uh, and take what the director. And I find that um, in an interview, you should ask the director or producer, in, in most cases the director, uh, uh, some questions about the scene and character. Uh, then what that, that does two things. You'll find out about the character, about the scene, and it puts you at rest. You, you put him on the hot seat <laughs> because he now has to think of the material and says, well, now this scene is, and he may not have studied that well, you know, who knows? <laughs> so he has to define the scene and the character to you. You just sit there, then you kind of relax and you try to gain control of yourself and the circumstances. You don't want to be in an interview where they control everything and you feel so small and scared that 
you can't even get your words out or you're, you're just uh, reading for the sake of reading. You want to be there so that you can look at them in the face and listen to them. Okay, if this is what you want, then you want to look down at the paper and then you give it to them. You know, put yourself into that part and give them the character that they described. Um, and be ready uh, for the, the, the um, director say, can you do this? You know, then he'll give you a total different instruction and you have to then pull up all your training and background and do that scene a different way. And can you do that? He's testing you. That's great advice. Let's talk about a specific example. We saw a little bit uh, from Blade Runner and the part that you played in that film, uh, Chu, was you're too young for that part now. You must have been about 15 when, <laughs> when they filmed it. Um, How long ago was that? 80-something. <laughs> yeah. So I wasn't time. born yet. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but talk about how you prepared for that role, because you are playing, uh, I think, an ageless character. Uh, and uh, what did you do, and, and how yeah, did the director yeah. of that film, Ridley Scott, see you okay. in that role? Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, first, it's so overwhelming to work with Ridley Scott that it, it kind of makes you nervous, you know. Uh, you, I remember walking on the set, uh, Warner Brothers, wasn't it? I think, I'm not sure. Does anybody know what studio? Yeah, right, right. Just testing you. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I walk on the set the first day and there was all these funny shapes of the signs and the, the black sets and whatnot. And uh, also down at the Bradbury building. Uh, <clears throat> I said, this man is a genius and a madman, you know, <laughs> uh, both. Uh, he's able to do those things nobody else thought of. Then I went in for a wardrobe, and um, I remember that very well because they, they, they had the wardrobe for me, and it was this heavy cowhide. Uh, if you look closely, you'll see the, the cowhide, the, the, uh, the f hairs uh, sticking out and so forth. It's so, it was so stiff. I put on, and even though if he's Ridley Scott, I said, this guy's nuts, you know. <laughs> I said, how can you move around in this, you know, and then that little cap and the, the whatnot. I didn't picture the character being that. I thought he was a scientist, you know, <laughs> inventing uh, eyeballs and so forth. But, but after they finished with that costume and we went in on the set, I said, this guy, I said, then he becomes a genius. When you see what he did, the thing as a whole, you know. But still, the horrible thing about it is um, uh, it was at the end of the Blade Runner shooting schedule, I think like two weeks before the end. And I hope it doesn't happen to you people on a huge picture when you're over budget and you're coming at, at the end. <laughs> that, that is totally torture, you know, because it's... Um, they're rushing around and, and uh, nobody uh, is really paying attention to it because they're going crazy after three months or whatever it is. So, uh, and on top of it, the set of uh, Blade Runner where Chu had his lab, for some reason, uh, Ridley Scott chose a real refrigerator, a real ice box, a freezer. And so, 
One day when I came to, to work, uh, the second day, I think, all these semi-trailer again was lined up outside of the, uh, the set. I said, what's going on with it? They said, they're waiting for us to vacate the freezer so they can bring the meat back in. <laughs> can you imagine the pressure of that? You know? <laughs> so, uh, uh, so we had to s- scrap a lot of things that, that, that was brilliant in the script. Because uh, in the script, it was written that Chu, at the end, when uh, Harrison Ford comes back to investigate, uh, one of the cops uh, True uh, was already frozen, and so the cop just acted, uh, or wanted to touch Chew, and Chew topples over and splatters into a million pieces of ice. Cannot do that, you know, and uh, different things, uh, and uh, uh, visual scenes such as um, when I am doing the eyeballs, um, the, the, the eyeballs, uh, uh, the, the, the villain dropped the eyeballs on the, oh, these are your eyeballs, he dropped them on the floor, and then as he walks toward me, he squish, 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 and th- that had to be taken up, no time. So uh, then is when all of your training comes to fore, because I said then, how about in the beginning, letting Chu talk to the eyeballs in Chinese? And I said, because these eyeballs are my children, uh, I nursed them from nothing to perfection. They are my children, so let me talk to them. And so that's why you hear uh, some jibber jabber of, uh, ah, and, and so that, that stayed in. And then well, instead of squishing on the eyeballs, um, uh, the, the villain merely puts it, as he's talking his dialogue, he puts it on my shoulder. And, and just plays with them. And that became very visual, but that wasn't on the script. Uh, so uh, during those moments, you then have to improvise. What does your character do? If they do something different as their character, how do you respond to that? Are you then prepared? Did you study the role? Who is Chu? And where is his eyeballs going? Who's got him out there? You know, so that when you look at him, uh, you Nexus, you know, I design your eyes. Then he says, Chew, if I, if you see, if you only see what I have seen with your eyes, famous line. Uh, and uh, and then you know, so so it, I did what I could with my. Uh, um, uh, training. And then on the second day, or third day at the most, we had to leave because the, the, the meat had to come back. In. <laughs> so if you think big budget movies have everything, no, no, you, it becomes a big budget, low budget movie. <laughs> My personal favorite performance of yours is uh, the role of Lopan in uh, Big Trouble in Little China. I think it's also one of the most underrated films, and I think that your performance uh, basically playing two roles is uh, amazing. Um, I remember seeing that film and thinking you were both hilarious when in you the were one kid, role. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, when I was a baby, practically <laughs> yeah. a baby, and terrified of the Mandarin wizard. Um, so can you talk about that film and that process and how you developed these two very distinct characters? Have we got that much time? Sure. <laughs> 
Uh, well, to start from the very beginning, uh, as far as the interview, because interviews are very important to the people here. Um, so uh, 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 I came in. Who's the director now? Uh, that was John Carpenter. John Carpenter. Just testing you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, John Carpenter called me in. And of course, we all know he's a, a great director in those horror films and science fiction and so forth. Uh, so I was prepared, talking about lumping in pre preparation. I said, well, Lopin is a wizard. And, uh, and he also uh, participated in all these supposedly action scenes that um, uh, uh, we see in the, mo in the story, in the, in the script. Uh, so I said, OK, so I'll, uh, uh, those are the two things. And, and he uh, loves women. Uh, and he's very devilish, in a sense. So I've tried to put all of that in uh, uh, the sense. I, I never do a villain without a sense of humor. And so I think that sense of humor came through in Lopin when he says things like, indeed, uh, you're not put on this earth to get it, Mr. Burton. <laughs> uh, different things. And we add lib lines like uh, when I roll up in that uh, wheelchair to the TV and I see somebody entering. Now, this really pisses me off to no end. <laughs> Those lines we had live in there and they kept in there. So, so if you get into the character uh, well enough, you, you can ad lib. And in big productions, they hate for you to ad lib, but you just go ahead and do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, you know, if it's good, they'll accept it. It doesn't hurt anything, right? It takes one take. Uh, and uh, there were a lot of things they kept in because it had a sense of low pan, has a sense of humor. And, uh, in a way, it's very much in tune with uh, my background because John Carpenter took the, the style of the old Kung Fu films from uh, Raymond Chow in uh, Golden Harvest to make that film. He saw one of Golden Harvest's films and patterned it, the style of the fighting and, and so forth. Uh, and so uh, uh, and then I practiced my Kung Fu. Different things. Of course, when it becomes dangerous, I let my stuntman take it. <laughs> but yeah, you practice daily, you know, on this. <laughs> those, <laughs> those little things like, um, and the Chinese are always in those little, before John Carpenter and all those uh, films, they always go like this, you know. And the, for some reason, there's little powers that come out of here. <laughs> you dare laugh. <laughs> anyway, so, so they, they, they do that from as far back as we can remember in the Chinese film, they had this thing. And the little things come out and fight in the air. So, um, so I said, well, I'll do something different. I'll go like this. <laughs> and because uh, Victor, uh, Victor Wong, uh, uh, was a funny guy. He was the, the other guy in that fight, old man fighting me. He didn't have a chance. <laughs> uh, they only let him win in the script. <laughs> so anyway, uh, it, it was lots of fun. And, and talking about underrated, you said, when they tested that film out in those markets where you have a questionnaire, you know, and you give answers, uh, I was told that it had one of the highest ratings of a research, uh, a film and research. So it was destined to have big box office. 
But sometimes we actors do our best job and the, all the other uh, people who grubbed and slave in that picture, uh, uh, we just do our work, but you have no control over it because um, um, the guy who owned the, the, the studio, I think he had some kind of a infighting with uh, uh, whomever on the production and, and he simply never fight with the boss because he says, um, just uh, you know, take the budget from the advertising into this and put it into my next film or whatever. And uh, we were totally helpless. So uh, that film came out and didn't get much attention because there were no marketing uh, for it. However, in the countries like Australia and Japan, where they had the campaign behind it was number one. And the, the only um, so-called reward we had from that, the people who worked on it, was the fact that uh, there's a cult following for that film now. See? So the, the audience spoke the truth for, for that film. But it, in a way, a success with that film would have probably turned my career around. So in a sense, you're in the hands of destiny. You know, no matter what you do, sometimes you can't control the so-called politics uh, and what they do with the film after you finish. Um, same thing with, um, if you don't mind me saying, the Black Widow, uh, uh, where I did the scenes with, you saw with uh, uh, Deborah Winger and Teresa Russell. Uh, it was definitely one of the best jobs I did. I really prepared for that dope attic. Um, I mean, I didn't smoke the stuff, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> almost. I, I, but I put all my so-called preparation off stage before I walk into the scene and so forth, so forth. So I was really in tune. When the camera rolled, I just became the character. And it was a, a great feeling. It feels like you're flying when you're doing a good performance, you know. So um, I didn't listen to what my mother said about don't show your emotions. <laughs> I just did what I, I did the best for that role. and. Um, Bob Rafelson in Thailand, I was doing another film there, and he stopped me in the lobby, and he, he was backpacking to go around the world and also there to help promote um, uh, Black Widow. He says, um, your role has gotten so much good comments. He says, everywhere I go, your, your role gets the first comment. He says, when I go back to Fox, I'm going to mention to the studio that they should Nom nominate you for an award. So I said, that's great, you know, that's, that's wonderful. So I was feeling pretty good. Uh, and uh, after I came back from Thailand, uh, about a month or so afterwards, I got this wonderful little note from uh, Bob Rafelson. He says, I try my best, but the studio said it was too early in the Academy Awards uh, uh, season and that it didn't get enough box office. So what am I to do about that, right? <laughs> Neither of those circumstances I had any control over. Uh, so sometimes you can do your best job and uh, still you don't really get the recognition uh, you, you so-called deserve. So in that sense, I've learned just to do a character or do acting the best I could and the rest I simply just 
leave behind me in the sense of uh, whatever happens. Good segue, because sometimes you can't do that, talking about Chinatown. Uh, you were in that film, and then 16 years later, played the same role in the sequel, The Two Jakes. Mm -hmm. How did you approach that? And did you have to go back to how you felt from the original and recreating the role? Uh, what was that yes, like? Yes, you do have to think of what the other film was all about and how the character traveled to this scene. And now Jack Nicholson wants the information and comes to the retainer, the butler of Faye Dunaway and find out about that, the daughter. You know? So you have to relate and play that. You, in a way, you have to rehearse twice. You have to rehearse the old movie, have, and then you rehearse the new movie. But Jack was such an easy person to work with uh, as an actor-director uh, that it was, uh, 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 in a way, simple. In a, by simple, I mean that it was a joy to work with uh, Jack as a director. Uh, I thought it, uh, he was a great director, and he's, is still a great director, uh, and certainly one of the best actors of all times. He is my idol. The, the way he did his role in uh, Five Easy Pieces, uh, where he won the Academy Award uh, for Best Supporting Actor, um, he just had that intrinsic know-how of being himself. And uh, again, we love his sense of humor. Uh, it's that uh, uh, same thing. Uh, if you play yourself and put yourself into the role and roll with it, it's going to show. But if you're too bottled up and hold your emotions in and, and uh, do what my mother said, don't let people see it, you know, then you're sunk. <laughs> so in a sense, you have to let it all hang out uh, for, for that role and go with it. Uh, trust your feelings and uh, please explore everything, uh, all the little molecules that you can because it's just like uh, Ridley Scott when he does Blade Runner. I find that uh, uh, what I learned from him was that he was never satisfied with the norm. He was all, like on the sets and so forth, he was a, well, how did he ever think of that, that little thing there, you know, or the, the, the gadget that I'm wearing, or, or this laboratory, uh, and all those scenes with uh, the girl tumbling and crashing into the glass. He must have stayed up nights and, and, just, <laughs> and, and never got any sleep of thinking, exploring everything in his brain and saying, no, no, that's too usual. I got to do something unusual. So same thing with you. You cannot sleep. You just got to keep thinking what you can do, what you can give that role that is different. And that is really you, you know, the, not somebody else. You can't copy. You've got to dig out some little thing that happened in your childhood, that happened recently. I don't care what it is, but that makes you, you. You have to bring that to the screen and then people will love it. Because why? They've never seen it. They, they don't know the real you. So they're not looking for somebody else to do, do the, 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 the scene. They're looking for what you have to offer. And you've got to explore that and learn how to bring it forth uh, in a play. I read something on IMDb that as soon as I read it, I assumed it's probably not true. But you'll tell us uh, that you had auditioned for the role of Mr. Sulu on Star Trek. <laughs> Is that true? I think it was uh, at... Columbia, uh, there on Gower Street. I think it was that studio. I'm not sure. Uh, by the way, who produced it? Uh, Paramount. P 
Paramount? Uh -huh. So it was Paramount. That <laughs> <laughs> it was Paramount, you're right. Um, uh, I was going for the audition uh, for that role, and then uh, Joyce Kay was coming down the, the sidewalk, and coming, uh, and in those days, there were turnstiles that you had to go through. He was coming out. I, I went, as I w was going in, I said, well, how is it, George? Um, and he said, oh, it's just another one of those. <laughs> <laughs> Same old thing. <laughs> uh, so, so I said, well, it can't be too much, you know. But little did I know, right? <laughs> but I'm really happy that George got it because he did so well. And, he, and uh, it became a way of life with him. It, it's just everywhere I go, I see George doing Star Trek. You know? <laughs> um, and it was great working with George. He's a very well-trained actor. I think it was on MacGyver, uh, the, the, the Wish Child we did, and was at the bottom of uh, the ocean liner out there, Queen, what is it, Queen? Mary. Queen? I, I thought it was Queen Elizabeth, but Mary. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, was, you, most of you haven't been there, but for location, down, down, down you go to the bottom of Queen Mary. It's just, there's water there. And there's these little walkways where you go through. And we, we went down there to film those scenes where you kind of walk on that walkway and go through the steel door uh, uh, into to the, the set they chose, you know. So uh, it, the scene is between George and I. Uh, we were vying against each other. And so, again, they do not have any time for that because it's the last scene of the day, right? <laughs> And it show you how good he is. Um, so they said, we don't have time for close-ups. We're not going to break up the scene. We're going to do it in one take. And the whole scene, three pages of this uh, dialogue, or whatever, <laughs> right? So we're kind of shaking, but it's a challenge for both uh, George and I. And so uh, uh, we rehearsed once. And uh, he said, well, I'm going to keep going around you with this camera, handheld or whatever he was doing. Uh, uh, so boom. They said, action, and George and I hit the gears, and it was really wonderful to work with him, and we moved accordingly to give the, 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 the action of the camera a little bit more movement to help it along. Then you learn how to play the house. That's very important, play the house. And I learned that how to play the house when I was a, a comedian. You know, you learn how to play all the elements. I saw this done by uh, Burt Lancaster, um, Go tell the Spartan. He's a, he knows everything that's going around him. He has eyes all over the place. And at the end of the scene, you better have done what you should have done because he'll know. Uh, he, he's the, he, no wonder he's a star. You know? He just has the facility. So George and I hit all these notes. You know, you, you know where the camera is. But you, you, you're still, your attention is on George Decay, the character. And, but on your peripheral, vision, you see all these things happening and you jockey a little bit to, to make sure that you're getting a good close-up and it's not <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, George is an expert at scene stealing. <laughs> a wonderful guy. So we did that cut and that was it. And again, that's exhilarating. When, when you are 
a train enough actor and you do something with another actor that knows exactly what he's doing and you hit, hit the mark on take one. It's, it's beautiful, you know? And with Sinatra, you better hit it on, on take one. The, uh, the once I worked with Sinatra, never so feel, um, I, it, they're about to roll the camera and he says, okay, everybody, now listen, you better get it on this take because I just do it once. <laughs> and everybody's going like this. <laughs> but that's the way it is. Uh, he just loves spontaneity. Do it once. He doesn't like to repeat it over and over again. So again, you as a supporting actor, of which I am, you have to know your stuff. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's tough to be the supporting actor. Why? Because you have to live up to the expectations of the, um, the star, the director, the producer. You're hired to do that job to come in one day, two days, or whatever it is, and be as good as everybody else. It's like doing Seinfeld. How many years were they together before I started? It wasn't too many because I was in the very beginning. Um, but they, you know, they're absolutely brilliant and they know each other. They know each other's manners. They, they don't even have to look at the other guy. They know how to answer and so forth. And you're expected to go in there and be as funny or funnier than they are. You know? so, so in a sense, you have to be on your toes and you have to uh, uh, draw all the, again, all your trainings as then as that uh, comedian. And again, you have to play the house. By that, I mean, when you're a comedian, you learn how to talk to this person in the front row and also direct your attention to that person. Good comedians always do that. They, they talk to each person in the house. And as, as, a, as a good actor should, you have to play the audience because they are the third character. I'm up here with you, but that person there is the third person. I don't think of you as a whole one conglomerate, no, because then what am I going to do? How am I going to react to you? I can only look at your face and say, she's not interested. Go to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, you know. But uh, it, the audience can generally tell how genuine you are or how you are reacting to what they are doing. And in a way, this is supposed to be conversations, but I'm the only one that's doing the talking. Because <laughs> you're doing so well. Um, <laughs> we're talking about television now. Besides what you've told us, um, are there challenges or different approaches that you take if you're doing television as opposed to film? Yes. It is. I was brought up in television in a way because most of my roles, like uh, the first three uh, movies I did, were very small. In Soldier of Fortune, I merely was talking on the telephone, talking Chinese as a young soldier, communist soldier. In uh, Blood Alley, I was accompanying uh, Victor Sen Young, who was raping uh, uh, Lauren Bacall, and I was shouting Chinese. And uh, love, love is many splendid thing. I had more to do, but it, 90% of it landed in the editing floor because in those days, um, some of it you may have read or remember, if, it, if there's anything too pink, you stay away from it. So the story of Han Su Yang took place in China. 
And so the scenes uh, uh, that I and Bill Holden had took place in Chongqing or in the rural areas of uh, China. And as we were doing the, the scene, I can remember uh, I was the driver and I had dialogue, you know, but they didn't abide on none. But anyway, Bill got out of the car during one take and he says, mark my word. He said, this will land on the editing floor. And he was right. Because the studio did not want to take any chances on footages that would so-called be pink. So because other, then it would be, the, they were brought before the board of McCarthy, uh, like Jeff Corey was. Jeff Corey did not work for a long time there. When he was uh, coaching me, he was not working as an actor. Uh, he was a, a teacher uh, uh, because he was uh, on the blacklist, you know, for I forgot what, or he never told me. But there were a lot of great talents that were put onto the blacklist. And so therefore, in a way, all the, the dialogue scenes I had in uh, Love is a Minutes when I'm thing were snipped out and thrown away because it was in the wrong part of China. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> It was about how uh, television is different from oh, films. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, the, being schooled in television, I, uh, uh, you learn how to do things fast. They give you a, how I learned during my early days is that uh, I remember very well in war, at Warner Brothers, uh, we were shooting all those westerns. I think it was Laramie and, uh, and Clint Eastwood's uh, 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 series, you know, before he went over to do those uh, uh, westerns, spaghetti westerns, and many, many, many westerns were made in, in the, at the time when I began my career. And so you walk into Warner Brothers, and it was one, one of those huge sound stages, and they would have rows and rows of makeup table. And this was Laramie, this was blah, 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 and you just go to that table, and you get made up, and you go through that western. So it was great schooling for me to be on TV. I wish you people had that opportunity to, to do that. Uh, in fact, it, it bothers me greatly that the young people are not working nowadays in, in films and TV. Uh, again, it would take five hours to talk about that. Uh, but uh, having that experience of doing uh, on the average of 10 films or 10 roles, 10 roles a year, uh, 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 I, I became very good at, uh, uh, you know, doing things fast and nailing everything on, uh, because you had to, right? Mm -hmm. you, you had to go from series to series. So that, um, for instance, like I was doing the remake uh, series of Perry, Perry Mason. Uh, I did the first one with Raymond Burr, and then I, I made the second one. And I'm waiting for the third guy. <laughs> <laughs> So in that essence, I'm at least a, culture, a couple of uh, eras <laughs> in the business. Uh, but anyway, it was during the second uh, the, um, series of Perry Mason. We were up there in um, uh, uh, the Japanese, um, what is that place up there on the mountain? That, Yamashiro. <laughs> that's it. You all heard that, Yamashiro. Uh, we're doing a scene there. I was called to do a, a movie. Uh, uh, and um, uh, later on, I, I got the role that was Chinatown. Um, I, and um, I went from Perry Mason to Chinatown. Perry Mason, we just 
Take two. Okay, wait, that's, wait, that's all we can do now. Take two, that's cut, that's it. And so that's in the can, right? And we, I walked, went down to that little house on, uh, near, near Griffith Park, I forgot the name of the street, that house where uh, Faye Dunaway, uh, not her beautiful house, but the house where she was hiding the, the child. And uh, I remember it very well because it was the first day, first scene, and Jack Nicholson was walking up the, the, the parked his car and walk up to the door, and I'm supposed to be at the door to answer the door. So it hadn't gotten to the part where I answered the door yet. It's, he's just driving up the f driveway and walks up to the door. So when I report the work, uh, it was on the 20th take. And so, <laughs> so after about 22nd take, and I'm just... <laughs> relaxing. I said, wait a minute. I, I, because I was so geared up by Perry Mason, right? What am I going on? Uh, I got to hurry. Uh, uh, got to be on. I know my lines. But let's go, you know. But after, after the 22nd take, uh, uh, the crew was hauling these cables around some more. And he says, how many times do you have to do walking up the driveway? <laughs> so, so in a way, that's the difference between super major motion pictures and doing uh, TV is that, you know, uh, 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 in a, a super feature in those days, I, I don't know about now, I haven't been in a big one for a long time, <laughs> but you just, Polanski just did, on the average, 20 takes, 25, and, you know, on, and Godfather was in the next stage uh, to us, uh, uh, and, um, and he, went on for 25 takes. I was told that they were vying against each other to see who could do many takes, you know, <laughs> who could outdo the other. So I'm sure the studio was biting their fingernails. But both were big hits, the first Godfather and Chinatown. In fact, Godfather is in a way knocked uh, Chinatown out of the uh, box office because they were such a big hit. But Chinatown stayed on as a classic, as you well know, because of that script. Mm -hmm. That is study in USC where I was and every college in the nation and foreign wise, that script is supposed to be just about one of the best scripts in the world. It just was well constructed. Uh, it had everything. And uh, all the, uh, uh, the actors that did cameos in, in that uh, movie did so well because it was written well and again, every character, every actor study their role. If you look at it again, you'll see that every actor, I don't care who it is, did, did extremely well. It's true. Let's uh, move uh, away from film and television for a minute. I mentioned in the introduction that you were one of the founders of the East-West Players. Um, first, for anybody who's in the audience who's not familiar with uh, theater, can you explain it a little bit and why did you start this group? Could you tell them what the East-West Players is all about? Um, it is the, the theater that's, uh, well, you can do it better than I can. <laughs> <laughs> there, my test came through. <laughs> no, East-West Player now is a group of about, I don't know the exact number of members, but I know they, they have members flowing through in the number in the thousands. And the theater down in Japanese town which used to be a Buddhist church age, they bought it and turned it into a theater, is uh, well visited by patrons and audiences all over. And <clears throat> a great school for actors, especially Asian Americans. 
they do a great, great service. Uh, and how it all started uh, was that um, I was living on Kingsley Drive as a starving actor <laughs> again. <laughs> <laughs> and I was doing nothing, you know, then, so, so uh, it was a very dingy apartment as I can remember. Uh, and I don't know why all apartment, apartments are dingy when you're a struggling actor. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so anyway, I called Marco on the phone, he came over, <clears throat> and he and I and a dancer named El Huang sat there at this, my little dining table, and we said, we, we got to do something, there's no work, you know, uh, 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 there's just, we don't get any recognition, uh, what can we do? So uh, a few days go by, and then Marco thought, we should do Rashomon, Rashomon. And that became the first play we did uh, because Rashomon in those days was a movie by Kurosawa and also a play translated. Uh, and so we took that play and it became our first play. Mako was the, uh, uh, the director, his father was the scene designer, the, the, the um, auntie was the costume maker, my sister Jade designed the brochures, and uh, everybody helped, all family alike, you know. And so what we did was that we started that little group and then it just kept growing. More people want to do more roles. We had a second cast and we went from theater to, to theater uh, in town here and kept going and just kept picking up momentum uh, Marco did a wonderful job as the director of the uh, uh, Playhouse, East West Players, and uh, gathered a lot of members, and we raised more money and kept going, and other people became uh, uh, the head of uh, East West Players, and now Timothy Dang is doing an out outrageously good job. He just does a wonderful job attracting uh, 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 people, whether they're actors or um, uh, or you know patrons, and how to get grants—that's the key to the whole thing. And they they do if those who are looking for an, an opportunity, no matter who you are out there, please check the East West players because they do have a great network of services. Let's move on to the I guess political aspects of this. Uh, the Asian and Asian American community is still very underrepresented in film and television. Why do you think that is, and what do you think the solution is? If I could answer that, I would be a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> One of the meetings we had here, not too long ago, maybe a year ago, we asked the um, <clears throat> Asian American actors to come here and meet to see what we could do. And I came to the meeting, and I was flabbergasted. Almost as many of you sitting here now were that number of young people who came because they wanted to know what is wrong with the industry. Why are they not getting employed? And, and you know, I, I think I spoke a few words, but what can you say? Um, there are so many circumstances that prevent uh, employment from happening. Uh, uh, one uh, is that nothing that we can do to control it. It's all politics, but they're going to uh, Canada, where I'm going next. 
and also <laughs> to uh, Bulgaria, where I just went, came from. They're making all these films in, in the foreign countries because of the tax breaks and the cheap labor and all these things. You know, in Bulgaria alone, the company that I shot with uh, uh, shoots four features uh, a year, four or five. And that's only one company in Bulgaria. There's you know, a couple more. There's more in Romania, the more in Czechoslovakia and so forth, uh, all over. And uh, uh, New World, Roger Corman is the forerunner in knowing how to do this. That's one reason. That the other reason is that um, they still don't think of the Asian Americans as characters in the mainstream of life. In other words, when you look at TV and movies, do you really see any roles that are Asian-American, so as to say, uh, being portrayed by Asian-American actors uh, in that uh, program? You don't. It, it's a, there are only a few, a handful. I think B.D. Wong got a, a running role, and uh, Ming-Na was on ER, and maybe a, a few uh, kitty shows or whatever. But on the whole, they, the casting and producer and directors don't think of, uh, okay, here's a stockbroker, here's a lawyer, here's a doctor in this script. Uh, let's just uh, call in everybody to play it and uh, see if, uh, and since he is a doctor, call in the, the Chinese-American actors and, and, uh, and see if they can play it. There's very few opportunities for the Asian-American uh, uh, actors, especially the young people, because... You don't see, again, in these teenage uh, uh, sitcoms and so forth, Asian-American actresses and actors. And, and uh, uh, when you do see them, they are either gimmick characters or sex objects uh, um, or uh, restaurant owners and, and uh, kung fu masters and such, you know. Uh, it, they never seem to think who are their doctors, who are their lawyers, <laughs> who are their stockbrokers, who is their financial manager, right? If they look around here, they'll see who it is. Is there a solution? Hmm? Is there a solution? Is there anything that, uh, that we can do, that the people in the audience can well, do to uh, change? Key Luke, you remember Key Luke? Mm -hmm. uh, the guy that played the blind kung fu master in, in, uh, in kung fu. Uh, he and I sat in the curb waiting for a scene to be lit. He says, Jam, you're too impatient. Wait until China becomes real big. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he is uh, getting there. I'm sure he's listening in. Uh, he's right. I think in a few more years, maybe not during my career, I've waited 50 years for that to happen. Hasn't really happened yet. But hopefully in some of your young careers that this will be happening. I, I, I don't see how it could not be happening if the uh, uh, Chinese uh, keep growing and buying cellular phones and these Apple computers and whatnot. They'll, they want films that have themselves plus the uh, uh, white people in their cast, right? So if that comes to be, they'll just dictate the terms. Or they will, in turn, make so many movies themselves. Uh, uh, so I would say all of you better start learning Mandarin. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's true, isn't it? Because uh, I, even if it's, it's not show business, 
It says, whatever business you're in, you better learn Mandarin. <laughs> if you want to do business and survive, please do it. And it's the most fun thing to do in the world, really. In the, because I've seen people, uh, young people in Beijing when I was making Marco Polo there. Uh, the people that have the most fun were these young people backpacking or just uh, 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 in any way they can. They stayed in China, learned Mandarin by going to the language school and becoming a worker in China in the offices. And they're great demand even at that time. And this is 1982. <coughs> so, uh, um, uh, you know, now is, they're going to buy out, uh, what, what oil station is that? Um, that's right. What? Unocal. See? I think you're right. And, and, and I think... And See, I think, what we don't know, we just ask. It's true. But I, I, I think that is a solution. And the other solution that I would encourage, just because I have to do my job too, is, mm -hmm. you know... Make your own movies. You know, don't wait for Hollywood to give you the opportunity. That's true. I think the community needs to That's make true. films. That's true. like Better Luck yeah. Tomorrow. Really. Yeah. Right, right. I, I think uh, to answer your question more directly is that uh, I've, I've never rested. Uh, in a sense, my daughter says, uh, James, uh, Dad, you really got to take Pilates <laughs> <laughs> or Tai Chi more or something and relax. But, you know, I'm like my uh, brother, Walter. We're almost all Chinese. We're workaholics. So in a sense, I was always rehearsing for comedy or drama or something, never resting. And, and when things got slow, I, I um, went and sold uh, movies for Roger Corman uh, for New World. Uh, uh, I learned distribution. I learned how to make films. I made a few films. Uh, and really, now's the time for you to make films. I, I was too early. <laughs> Because with all these camcorders, digital and everything, anybody who's got an idea out there or ambition, you can just go ahead and make a film. You know, even if it only, if you uh, ask your mom for uh, $1,000, you can do it. Uh, and if you've got 2000 you've got an extravagant budget. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so I would encourage everybody. And like they say, everybody, isn't that right, uh, Dayleen? Everybody has one good script. You know, right? So, so please, get that script down or get that story or improvise it. I don't care what you do, but get that camera, get that crew, and get out there and shoot. Um, I, I know Dickie uh, would agree with me. Dickie and, and Linda, uh, uh, the, the, when they were young, they did King and I. Uh, so, you know, um, uh, everybody, everybody in the family was doing movies. <laughs> so, but if, you, if you're around now, you could simply pick up a camera and film anything you want to. Uh, and uh, with a little organization and learning from uh, certain production companies or whatever, go ahead and, and do it. It may be a winner. Who knows? Uh, that's definitely one way to help. Because you cannot control what call you are going to get next from the casting or producers. As I told you right now, they're not really thinking of you. They're not thinking of the uh, Asian Americans as, uh, hey, let's go get this person, you know. Uh, let's get, go Miss, uh, get Miss Wong, let's get uh, Charlie Hu over here to play this part. They're not thinking that. So you have to create your own opportunity, whether you're going to write it, direct it, or shoot your own uh, thing. And I know there's a lot of efforts being directed toward that end, and I wish you all luck. Me too. With the time we have left, let's um, take some of these questions. Left. 
Uh, two hours. Um, no. <laughs> got about uh, ten, min- 10 more minutes. Wow. Uh, so let's, uh, let's, uh, we've got some questions from the audience. This is from Jade. I, I might be your sister. Um, yeah. Uh, tell us your experience in making a film uh, with the dialogue all in French, which we saw a clip from that. How was it working uh, on that set? Yeah, th- that takes two hours. <laughs> <laughs> But that's a good question. That uh, I did that with Lily Sobieski in uh, Paris. Uh, it took us about uh, two months, uh, my time anyway, uh, maybe uh, almost three, with a director named Samantha Lang. And it's very ironic that America doesn't think of me as a leading man. For some reason, the French did. <laughs> as old as I am, they, they put me in that leading role. And uh, I don't think it's on sale here, though, unfortunately. Um, it only won some, uh, won some awards, but not the big awards. Uh, but at least I got an opportunity to do a leading role opposite a very nice young lady, very talented. And um, uh, it, it, to me, it was a great film in a sense of experience and the film as a whole. I wish I could have a special showing for anybody who wants to see it. Maybe we can. I do have the cassette. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, but what it did for me, I live opposite Notre Dame. I could practically reach Notre Dame and work with all these wonderful French people. And the whole script was in, in French, uh, 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 French. And so I, I, for the first time in my life, I said, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know. You know, I woke up being frightened because of all these huge dialogue in French. <laughs> At 74 or 3 or whatever it was, I, I just didn't trust myself to remember. But I learned 400 French words. <laughs> Woke up in the middle of the night, put the earphones on, and you know. By, by rote, I, I learned all the dialogue in, in that. If, so that's a lesson to be learned. If at 73 I can do it, you can do anything, right? You can just do anything if you set your mind to it. We have another question here from, uh, and I'm sorry if I destroy your name, Micah Ja Mott. Uh, have you Who? ever been? Who? Uh, Micah Ja? Micaiah. That, that I, thank you. Where? Raise your hand. Uh-huh, yes. Micaiah asks, have you ever been cast in a role where you didn't have to play a magnific- magnificent Asian, but were cast just because you were simply one of the best damn actors around? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yes, yes, uh, several. Uh, uh, one was uh, a, a film called Shadow Zone. Uh, and, and most of the, uh, these films are low-budget films because fortunately for me, they need a name for the role. And in Shadow Zone, it was just a scientist, a science fiction film. It was, in fact, it, was, it had a, a German name. I forgot it, The Scientist. And, and, I, and they were going to say, change the name to, to uh, Mr. Wong. I said, no, 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 keep that German name. So I played a scientist with this German name. Why? Because in Germany, there's a lot of Chinese. And, and, and uh, you know, it doesn't matter what their, their names are, right? They could have had a fake passport. It's true. So, so that was one typical, oh, what is this? 100% Jews. <laughs> thank you, thank you. 
next question comes from... Uh, yeah, it, it says here, 100%. <laughs> I'm not ad-libbing. <laughs> this is not a product placement. <laughs> Anna... What uh, was your question? I don't know. I haven't read it yet. Um, Anna Calafia uh, asks, uh, any favorite where, roles... Where are you? Where are you? Oh, yes. Any favorite roles? Any roles you turned down that you regret? Uh, any roles that you still hope to play? That's three questions. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> any roles I turned down, they were very few. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, uh, my predecessor, uh, Benson Fong, who owned the, all these Ah Fong restaurants, uh, you probably remember the restaurants. Benson was very successful, very talented. And uh, when I went on all these interviews, and no matter what they were, I just tried out and, and got the role usually. Uh, in fact, uh, some of you are here, and every time I show up at the interview room, oh, here he is again. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but ben, <laughs> Benson said, um, uh, James, I really admire you for taking all these roles. You know. But I guess uh, being trained for sympathetic Chinaman roles and uh, villains and uh, uh, good guys, bad guys, anything. Uh, I just had that sense that I can play it, you know, and Frenchman. Uh, and I, I did the best I could. But if the role was too derogatory, I would not take it. And uh, give a very brief description. And that's how uh, the first protest uh, uh, was formed because uh, I read that script called The Opium Eater. And uh, directed by Albert Zugsmith. And I said, we can't do this script because it's all about these uh, uh, slavery girls, opium and uh, prostitutes and whatnot. I, this is just terrible. This is when I was young and Hollywood was young in that sense for Asian American films. So I said, we got to do something. But none of the Chinese American uh, 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 actor and actresses want to do anything. But finally, I pursued it enough so that I got a group and we went to Albert Zucksmith and says, we cannot do this script. It's too derogatory. He says, oh, really? He says, I'm going to do it anyway. So at least we spoke up. He went ahead and did it. But that started the first protest. From then on, I think there were other protests uh, when there is a, a bad image or we're not getting equal opportunity, uh, we protest. Uh, and uh, we should, uh, in fact, form another group to go out there and, and get more roles for all of you. That's the only way to do it. Confront the casting directors of America, confront the producers of America, the directors, and say, look, you're not being fair. Here are the numbers. And I know the numbers will show that you're not getting uh, equal treatment. And then the last part of her question, are there any roles that you still want to play? Or types of roles? Mm-hmm. I would like to play a leading man, <laughs> or at least an important so-called, like you said, a non-Asian role, just a doctor, a scientist, or, uh, a Nobel Peace Award winner, <laughs> anything that's small, you know, <laughs> something that's very American, it's just what I am. It's great. Well, um, we have time for one more, and as usual, I get to ask it. And it's the question that I ask uh, everyone that, that I interview. Since we do have a lot of aspiring actors and actors in the audience, and people who are not necessarily pursuing acting, with your experience and your career, 
Is there one piece of advice that you haven't already given that you would give to somebody who wants to enter this field? Okay, advice. That costs money. <laughs> nothing's, nothing's free in this world. But before I answer that question, the, uh, I'm having a small reception at the foundation room down the, am I pointing right mm -hmm. way? The, the, the hallway uh, going to the, the, the walkway going to the uh, parking structure. And you're all welcome to eat whatever my voiceover budget could buy. <laughs> <laughs> but in a way, that's a whole other topic. Uh, I, I hope you all are voting. Uh, is it over yet, that vote, uh, a date to vote uh, on the uh, uh, voiceover for I, games I and so know, forth? Actually. But anyway, that's a whole new um, uh, a profession. All of a sudden, I'm a voiceover artist. You know, before for, for this, we never heard of it in a way. We just thought there was a certain group that did voiceovers and another group that did on-camera stuff. But now everybody's doing voiceovers, right? All of you that do voiceovers, let me see your hand. That's good. That's good. The rest of you are family right here. <laughs> but, uh, but in a way, you have to do voiceovers to survive. Um, so what was your question? Advice. Oh, advice. That's what my advice is, is that uh, uh, you should just try, try everything. Try everything. Be seen. Get out there and do your thing. Uh, work at it. Refocus your direction. Uh, make a schedule. Uh, for yourself, what are your goals? What are you doing each day to accomplish it? Uh, portion your 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 hours accordingly, and and go for it, and not just be nightclubbing all the time, you know. <laughs> uh, although that is fun, but, <laughs> but you just have to have that budget or the schedule of your time, what you are doing with your life, uh, and, and then uh, uh, it, it's, you know at least give it a real college try and go for it. And if you're butting your head against a stone wall, then you have to take another profession. Um, just to, since, so you don't have to do the commercial, I will, if you didn't get enough tonight, you'd like to learn more okay. about James, or if you would like to uh, join his classes, uh, you can visit his website, which is jameshong.com. Oh, that's um, a good commercial, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that was product placement. Um, James, thank so, you so much. Okay, so I'm going to excuse myself there. Uh, we st but do stay. There's a f uh, one, at least one free item that uh, he's going to hand out. And we're go not going to tell you how you receive it. You'll find out. I'm going to take my two cups of hot water. Um, James. Well, let's see. Thank you Thank you so much. <laughs> stay here. Stay here. Thank you for listening to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation and reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAG-AFTER-FOUND. We'd love to hear from you.